Welcome to the WealthStream Podcast. The team at Hightower Great Lakes share their insights and passions for empowering their clients to live their best life. In this energetic podcast, we will take you on a journey to help you navigate your financial future, overcome life's challenges to reach your financial goals, and find the financial clarity you've been searching for. Let's explore the downstream impact of your wealth and what it means to you, your family, and your community to live greater. Hello and welcome to The Wealth Stream with Tim Scannell from Hightower Great Lakes. Today, Tim has a great guest in studio, and that is Kirk Hill. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Uh, we're good. Thank you. How good are you morning, doing? Eric. Yeah. Oh, doing fantastic. Good. Tim, I'm, I'm excited. Kirk, I've never met you before, brother. I thank you so much for being on the show. Tim always has the best guests. I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> I learn a lot. So, Tim, why did you bring Kirk in today? Well, Eric, you know, we've talked a lot in the previous podcasts about our, what I think is a unique wealth management formula. And you know, when we manage wealth for clients, obviously we have investment management. We talk about advanced planning topics like wealth mm -hmm. enhancement, tax planning, you know, cash flow planning, wealth protection. We always try to make sure that the clients that have charitable intent, that you know, their, their gifts are impactful. And as you know from doing the podcast with me for a long time, I'm certainly not smart enough to do it all on my own. So one of the <laughs> things that one of the things that we try to do is we periodically, usually annually, go through a process where we interview a lot of professionals, CPAs, attorneys, trust officers, insurance specialists, and we try to come up with a professional team of network a network of professionals. Oftentimes our clients have great professionals they work with, and oftentimes there's a gap where we want to hopefully fill them in. So today mm -hmm. I wanted to bring on Kirk because he is a uh, one of the professionals we've interviewed, we've screened, and he's a subject matter expert for advanced planning with high net worth clients in the life insurance sector or life insurance um, industry. So that's why he's here. Fantastic. All right, Kirk, thanks again. I'm looking forward to learning a lot. Yeah, so what I thought, Eric, is maybe as a starting point, I could just introduce the audience to Kirk. So Kirk, tell me a little bit about um, what you do, where you've been, all that stuff. Thanks, Tim. I actually uh, was licensed to sell life insurance the day after I graduated the University of Connecticut. My wife and I are the only two Yukon Huskies that settled west of the Hudson. Oh, okay. But we're Midwesterners. I've been in the insurance business for what is nearing 40 years. And I'm on the distribution side, meaning I provide financial professionals with knowledge and guidance relative to implementation of insurance. Primarily life insurance, although we spend a fair amount of time on disability income where appropriate, as well as long-term care. And those are both uh, pretty regular assignments for us as well. But by and large, most of our activity is to come alongside financial professionals that know a fair amount about a lot of things, but when they encounter needs that call for the application of life insurance, we'll come alongside them and uh, help guide their thinking and then provide them access to 40 or so insurance carriers to provide an optimal solution for their clients. Um, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself in that regard, uh, but my wife and I live in Indianapolis and uh, we're grandparents and have three adult kids. And uh, life is good. Excellent. I, I know that, Eric, I, I don't know if you know this, but I might have mentioned on a previous podcast, one of the things that 
I try to organize is three or four times a year, I get together with a group of professionals, CPA, attorney, trust officer, and we literally case study and brainstorm. And I find that, you know, by sharing ideas with other professionals in different parts of the industry, we oftentimes come, oftentimes come up with um, solutions and thoughts and strategies that, you know, each of us didn't think about, and we each take back to our client base. And it's, I think it's a, it's a great kind of a study group, informal study group approach, and Kirk's part of that. That's great. So, Kirk, just before we get into some of the advanced planning topics that you wanted to cover today, uh, tell me a little bit, do you have hobbies outside of those grandkids of yours? Are they local? Do you travel with them? I do. My wife is a fitness instructor, so she keeps me uh, on point relative to trying to stay uh, in touch with something called physical fitness. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, but I'm at that age where uh, I'm on the downslope, so that's harder every day. She and I both are golf nuts, and uh, we play a fair amount without improvement, I might add. <laughs> of course. Uh, but last year or two have been the time where we've moved to just enjoying the walk in the park. So, so that's good um, because of the uh, time I've spent in the industry, I, I have a couple of dozen very meaningful relationships with financial professionals like yourself. I've gathered their business just by doing the little things that, that they need, like somebody showing up on time and doing what they say they're going to do because they're all about uh, serving their clients and they need somebody to, to rely on. And that's, that's my role as I see it. Well, good. So there, there's a couple of key topics or advanced planning topics I'm going to jump around with you on, if you don't mind, because I know from working with my clients, um, you know, researching for my clients, these are kind of hot areas. So like one is, in, you know, we work with a lot of business owners, business succession plans, and I know we've talked a little bit about a concept that you've expressed. I think you called it fair and equal or fair versus equal. So Tell, tell me what you think that means as it relates to succession planning and business, you know, business uh, wealth management transfer. Well, I'm tempted to say that's a conversation that needs to be answered by the client, and each client is going to have a different definition. But sometimes we will encounter circumstances, actually pretty regularly. Let me use a live example where we have a patriarch or a matriarch who has built an organization, and let's say they have three children two of which are in the business, one of which probably shouldn't be in the business, but he or she is, and one of which in the business is already running the business. And as mom or dad think about that entity and wanting to pass it into the hands of the next generation, what's the best way to do that? And how do we handle the, the third child that moved to the West Coast 15 years ago and really doesn't have any interest in the business? Um, and so sometimes insurance can be a, an appropriate tool to answer the question about fair and equal. And I say that because uh, what we'll find on occasion is I'm going to use a very round number in this business entity. Let's say this business entity is worth $1 million and there are three children. And mom or dad think to themselves, why don't we simply pass what amounts to $350,000 into the hands of each one, either in the form of the business itself or in the case of the one who has no interest, maybe we'll take care of him or her with a life insurance contract. That's an appropriate use for permanent life insurance, but the 
sensitivities come in play where if you have one of the children that walks away with his or her share of the business in monetary value, the others have the business and they're saddled with the obligation or privilege of running that business to be a source of their income. Whereas the one who was essentially bought out, for lack of better terms, walks away with cash in pocket. So sometimes my, my point is fair isn't always equal. And that's a conversation that we regularly will have with, with clients to walk them through what they might want to think about relative to these kids and how that question could be answered differently family by family. Yeah, I know I'm working on a with a client right now who she would like the business to go to her daughter who's very active in the business and at the same time figure out a way to treat the two boys fairly. But it can't be equal because the business is such a large piece of the, the entire estate. So yeah, it gets super complicated. It's very emotional, obviously. But I do agree with you. I think that's a very important starting topic uh, when we meet when we talk to our clients. L- let me jump to just general estate planning. I know I've had conversations with you. I've, I talk with my clients about the fact that there's a pretty large exemption now. You know, I guess the total of up to $22 million you can pass between a husband and wife or spouses to the next generation. So a lot of people are not thinking about estate taxes, but there's a sunset provision. Do you, do you want to kind of talk about that and maybe... I think you talked about a wait-and-see plan of, of planning for when those exemptions will likely go back down. Sure. I'm of the belief that because of the acrimony that exists in Washington right now, it's not hugely likely that we'll see movement on this issue and that we will be confronted five years from now with a sunset of the existing estate tax code. And if that happens, now all of a sudden we revert to instead of $11.5 million per person, uh, $5.5 million per person. And depending upon what might happen politically, if the power were to shift to the Democratic Party, their preference, based on existing proposals, is to move that to about $3.5 million per person. So there are a lot of potential moving parts, and I'll, I always want to remain apolitical. That's a whole separate discussion. We want to deal with what is likely to happen when a client passes away relative to their overall estate. And if we find ourselves with a $3.5 million exemption on our hands within three to five years, that's a whole different conversation than if we knew with certainty that a couple could pass 22 or $23 million without fear of any type of uh, estate tax erosion. So what we try to do to manage that risk is evaluate what a client's balance sheet looks like today. And what is the growth rate that that balance sheet has exhibited, including if the business represents a fair amount of that balance sheet? What what does the business growth look like, and what it's what is it likely to look like? And we've had some success simply communicating to clients a thought that maybe it makes sense to purchase a what I would call a foot in the door policy or a wait and see policy in the form of very low cost term insurance that's designed to buy them 10 to 20 years, during which, as these questions surrounding the estate tax begin to settle, they'll then have the right to make that product permanent. So, again, each family is going to be a little bit different, and even if we knew with some certainty what the world will look like in 10 years, what we don't know is what the world will look like at time of death. Mm -hmm. And as I 
know we talked about at one point in our previous conversations, there have been 35 changes to the estate tax code since inception. <laughs> exactly. And so the likelihood that the next change will be the last one is relatively low. But we think it's prudent to look at this and simply suggest with or without estate tax liability, it might be a prudent thought to prepare for um, the possibility that they'll have some estate tax exposure and look at insurance as a vehicle to pass resources to the next generation efficiently, whether they have any estate tax exposure or not. And I think there's a case to be made for that uh, in in proposal form on a client-by-client basis. And it sounds like, I know when we were, like the, the business example we talked about just a minute ago, or the fact that the estate tax laws and exemptions will change, I imagine there's, you know, we find there's a lot of irrevocable life insurance trusts that have uh, policies that have been issued maybe, you know, years and years ago, maybe haven't been reviewed. Can you talk about just the the landscape of the life insurance industry, maybe some of those older products compared to some newer products and maybe justifying the need to at least do some reviews of those irrevocable insurance trusts in light of the law changes, but also the industry changes. Yeah, in fact, the undercurrent that we're struggling with as an industry, and this is true of all companies, the companies I represent, the companies that I don't represent in the insurance world, are struggling under the weight of low interest rates. And low interest rates are not going away anytime soon. So we are periodically asked to look at policies held in trust or held personally that might have been placed 20 years ago or more when interest rates, uh, at the time the crediting rates in these policies might have been 7, 8, even 9% fixed income type crediting. Those rates have fallen precipitously. And today, many of these products are crediting at the guaranteed minimum rate which these policies might hold forth at 3%, 4%. Some of them are at 5%. But rates have fallen basically to the minimum, which means that these policies have not performed as they were originally illustrated. And we simply want to take a snapshot of the relative health of the contract. And is there room to strengthen that existing contract? Is there room to perhaps look at uh, guaranteeing the outcome using a product that gets away from accumulated cash. That's a separate story altogether. And more importantly, what do the needs look like today? Are there reasons why these clients bought that policy still in place? Or when it was bought, when the exemption was, say, $600,000 apiece, has their balance sheet remained relatively modest? If so, there's always an argument that says maybe the policy simply could be surrendered and the proceeds distributed in terms of the cash surrender value of the product. So we try to be open-minded about what is it the client trying to accomplish and how can we best get there in a way that uh, fits into their risk tolerance. Okay. And, you know, separate from the life insurance question, I know we, when we do reviews of existing buy-sell agreements, oftentimes there's disability insurance in there. So, you know, the risk is that in the event of a partner becomes not, not doesn't pass, but becomes disabled, partner needs, long-term care. I, I know that those products have changed also, a lot of the pricing, a lot of the features. So t- talk a little bit about like even how long-term care is purchased now maybe versus how it used to be in the past, same with disability. Well, you've brought up a couple questions. One is in the context of business, and one is a kind of a general question how these products have been evolving. When it comes to 
the risk businesses face, we do want to evaluate the relative values that each shareholder owns and are there liquidity needs that exist in the event of death, disability, divorce, etc. Those are all contingencies that ought to be dealt with legally in the agreement that they may have transacted where there is a formal business continuation agreement in place. We simply get involved in looking at each of those contingencies and say, are there, is there a need for liquidity? And has that need for liquidity been adequately provided for through one source or another? In some cases, it makes sense to look at insurance. The most undersold, if you will, or underbought product is disability buyout, where we look at a disability policy that will pay the proceeds to allow the purchase of a disabled shareholder, purchase the shares of a disabled shareholder in the event of disability. And uh, can you give an example, maybe, of a of a situation where you've seen that work? I mean, I mean, I, I believe in it, but maybe it would help the audience if they kind of saw a picture. Sure, I paid disability claims for about eight years when I was exclusively a disability insurance distributor. And we had exposure to a fair number of live files like that. And we had a situation where we had two uh, family practice physicians, one of whom became legitimately disabled, and they each had a $100,000 disability buyout policy. Once the disability lasted for a full year, which was the trigger date or the elimination period, then $100,000 was payable to the healthy physician who was then obligated to purchase the shares of the disabled. Now, I get the fact that $100,000 might be a relatively modest amount, but the concept is applicable today. So we look for business situations where there is a legal obligation created by agreement to purchase the shares of the disabled, and then ask the question, is the business prepared to do so? Or are the healthy owners prepared to do so? Where will they get the money? And is that going to be able to be accomplished cleanly when the business may be suffering under the weight of a key person being unable to contribute? Yeah, and I imagine those proceeds, they can be used to buy out, but they could also be used to the cost of trying to find and replace that key person, too. Correct. And there are a few variations of those coverages that might exist. Now, you also mentioned long-term care. Here, too, it's a client-by-client -client consideration. There's some debate as to what level of assets is appropriate where an individual can comfortably self-fund that risk. And the number I keep seeing both inside and outside of my industry is maybe three to four million dollars of liquid assets is the amount of investable assets that would have somebody comfortable enough to self-fund that should they choose to do so. We have seen good fruit looking at smaller cash value policies that really are no longer needed. However, they might have a gain embedded in them. So we want to be careful that we don't simply surrender them and have a client receive a, a, a nice surprise year-end in the form of a 1099 from that life insurance company. So what is allowable today is a as an exchange, known as a 1035 exchange, into products that also might allow access in the event of long-term care, which is defined as the loss of two out of six activities of daily living. And that can provide a nice bridge type of product for folks whose balance sheet is becoming healthier, but maybe they're not quite to the point where they can comfortably self-fund that. So I think that's an appropriate use or, or a possible solution for older life products that maybe don't necessarily fit the bill. Yeah, um, for the that, that's a great idea. You know, I, I do oftentimes when I 
am gathering data, you know, you're discovering where the assets are, what people have. I find that maybe a client's parents purchased a policy in the past when they were kids and now, you know, they're like, oh, I got this thing out here. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's some old MetLife or, you know, John Hancock policy that I'm not sure what to do with. And yeah, it, it probably could be a better use if it was converted to something that off, also offered some long-term care benefits. Yeah. Client by client, uh, sometimes that makes sense. Obviously, when we're talking about a new proposal, health becomes a serious consideration. So we're quick to say time out if we run into a bump in the road and most of the folks that we're serving are age 50 and up. Uh, and so the super preferred uh, marathon runner risk is the exception rather than the rule. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why when we represent 40 carriers, we like to build a model where the carriers compete with each other to make an underwriting offer. They know they're, they're competing. And we think that that produces an outcome that is in the client's best interest, where we want to catch a carrier making an offer that might be a little too competitive with a product that is particularly sharply priced. So each of those will vary a little bit depending upon the, spo uh, the, the scope of the case and the circumstances surrounding it. Okay. So let me jump to just a, a different topic. We recently recorded a podcast about the SECURE Act. So when Congress and when they signed the budget bill in December, right before Christmas in 2019, they created the SECURE Act, and, it, and we talked a little bit in the last podcast about some of the strategy changes as a result of that. So we talked before this podcast, Kirk, you and I, about some of the strategies you used to have versus you do have. So can you, can you give us a kind of an outline of, of how you see ACT and some of the things that are changing as a result of it? Sure. The primary issue that we're struggling with is how to react to the new 10-year limitation on distributions for an inherited IRA to a non-spouse. In past, we took a lot of pleasure in assisting clients who didn't necessarily want to take required minimum distributions. They had to. And uh, the most common model would be that the IRA holder would name their spouse as beneficiary and name their kids as contingent beneficiaries we would utilize the concept that we've branded the stretch because what we would encourage the consideration of is the disinheriting of the children and naming the grandchildren as contingent. That way, uh, upon the spouse's demise, the grandchildren could take receipt of qualified money and stretch the uh, distributions of their inheritance over their lifetime. That is a piece that's no longer possible. Uh, we have a 10-year maximum really 10 years from majority. So if a minor child inherited uh, a part of an IRA at age 15, as an example, they'd have six years to majority plus 10 years beyond that. So 16 years to take distributions. So it's not quite as interesting as a lifetime distribution where they might receive a check every year from grandma or grandpa, even though grandma and grandpa passed away 20 years ago. They, sure. They'd never forget yeah, their for grandparents. Sure. So it was very exciting. So now we're wrestling with the question of, uh, within the SECURE Act, looking at the IRA holder and evaluating his or her tax bracket to determine what is their tax bracket, what is the tax bracket of their children? Because oftentimes we have retirees that might be in their 70s or 80s in a relatively modest tax bracket. Their children, who might have been targeted to inherit these IRAs, are in their peak income earning years. And so maybe it's not so prudent 
to take minimum distributions. Maybe they want to take a little bit more than minimum distributions to try to manage the passage of that wealth. IRAs, qualified plans in general, are terrific instruments. It's just at the end of the at the end of the road, at the end of life, they're not the best vehicles to die with. Mm -hmm. And so I think this has opened up new conversations to just evaluate very shrewdly how to pass those resources. And life insurance can be a tool within that conversation because it can be used to put dollars inside a tax-efficient vehicle that can be opened by the next generation or the generation after that, free of any type of income tax uh, obligations. So I think we'll be talking about it a lot. I don't know that the, the act has really moved the needle for us, if anything, that stretch concept is gone, so probably our most common project has been taken away from us. But we want to be prepared to at least talk about it confidently and guide the thinking of, of a client or advisor, depending on what's appropriate. Yeah, and I think the, the theme of that and all the other topics you've brought up today are really that there needs to be continually a, continual, a process to continually review plans that are in place. You know, I, I didn't want to get too complicated or too in-depth with all these topics. But at the same time, I wanted to make people aware that, you know, with the SECURE Act, I've been working with stretch the stretch IRA concept for, boy, 34 years since I've been in business. And it has really forced us to reevaluate how we look at assets, how we look at, you know, the liquidation, the distribution, and where does where do things come from? Look at the different buckets as we're trying to plan tax-wise and tax-efficiently for clients. So, this we kind of glossed over a lot of these topics, but I guess one of the things I like to things I like to do is maybe if there's additional information that people are looking for, is there can you provide me with maybe how to how to reach out to you? Sure. Let me close my comments sure. just by saying my industry, the insurance industry, is really really good at thinking of very complicated strategies to sell big policies, and I think we need to be really careful along those fronts. In my humble opinion, there's only two reasons to buy or own life insurance. It's because you love someone or you owe somebody. And, <laughs> sure. and the latter is in or the context both. Yeah. <laughs> or both in the context of businesses. And I think if we get too far afield from those two fundamental reasons, we as an industry can get ourselves into trouble. So as long as we think in simplistic terms, I, I view my role to keep that discussion at the client level, even in very sophisticated settings, very large, complicated estates. Try to keep the conversation as simple as possible because these can be complicated concepts. It's difficult for us to convey them to the advisor, much more difficult for the advisor to convey to the client. So I would certainly invite anyone to reach out to us. I can be reached uh, at email khill at highland, H-I-G-H-L-A-N-D dot com, or phone, yeah, 317-208-9174. And I sure appreciate the opportunity to, to weigh in on some of these things today, Tim. Oh, sure. And like I said in the beginning, you know, we are, as professionals, none of us know everything. Um, and we're always trying to collaborate. And that's why, you know, we've, we've been getting together. We, have, we schedule these meetings where we're case studying, brainstorming, sharing ideas. Um, and I think they've been really valuable. And I know they'll be really valuable going forward for your clients and for my clients. So, Kirk, I want to thank you very, very much for being here. I really appreciate it. And I know that our clients are all better off, and hopefully the audience has picked up some couple of good ideas. Well, I'm honored to be a part of the conversation, and I sure appreciate you looking to us as a resource. And if we can help you or your clients in any way in future, 
we'd be thrilled to be a part of it. Kirk and Tim, this was a fantastic podcast. Again, I always learn just a ton of good stuff whenever Tim brings on a guest. So again, I'll reiterate what Tim said. Kirk, thank you so much for being here. And Tim, thank you for bringing him on the show. Oh, thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. You bet. And audience, I want to thank you for listening to the Wealth Stream Podcast with Tim Scannell. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Tim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Hightower Great Lakes, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the WealthStream Podcast. We hope you gained some valuable insight that you can apply to your life and share with others. Please don't forget to subscribe below to be notified when new episodes become available. And don't forget to live greater. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Great Lakes. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Great Lakes is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or legal information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.